Please turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We will um, finish what we started regarding the passage of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And today we are dealing with the subject of worship, true worship. What is spiritual true worship? Still? Still messed up? Now? Better? Okay, let me just pull it a little bit away so it doesn't rub against my beard, which drives Freddy crazy, he told me. Uh, John chapter 4, we will read starting in verse 2, 1, I'm sorry, but then skip to verse 15. You probably find that skipping on the screen too. And I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. Not that I'm turning a, heresy, a heretic or anything, but I like the reading from the NIV on this passage. So let's read together. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And then that encounter with the Samaritan woman we dealt with last time happened in their dialogue. But the dialogue continues. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, (laughs) I find it humorous, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray once again. Father, we commit this time to your care, to your grace, and to your spirit that the reading of the word and the explanation, the exhortation of the word may be unto your glory, may be unto edification, may change us, prod us, encourage us, rebuke us, teach us, admonish us, whatever it is the need of each and every one here that you know intimately well, perfectly well, even better than they know themselves. May your word, applied by the Spirit, be useful and unto edification for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a simple outline. You have it right there. We're going to look at the Samaritan's question about worship. 
we're going to look at Jesus' answer, and then what is this worship in spirit and truth, which Jesus says that is true worship. I have a long introduction, and briefly we'll cover the outline. But the long introduction is that Freddie wants us to consider how the gospel has an impact in our daily lives, how gospel truths change us. Well, here's one where the gospel connects directly with worship. Here's Jesus talking to a woman, offering himself as the Savior, as the source of living water, telling her, you're the one, I'm the one you need, I'm Messiah, I'm the Christ, I'm the Savior, and immediately that links to true spiritual worship. It doesn't... It doesn't Uh, segue itself easier than that because the passage ends in that application. Worship defines the ultimate destiny and condition of a person. Worship is so crucial that our destiny is linked to that. In John 17, when Jesus was praying, he said, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That people may know God, the only true and living God. And not just God generic, that they may know Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That is eternal life. Knowing God, worshiping God, the true and living God through Christ, defines the eternal condition and destiny of each and every person. Worship is the fabric of the first commandment. First commandment of the law, what is it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Meaning what? You will not worship absolutely anything or anyone else as God but me. By the way, that's why we need grace to be saved. Because we cannot even fulfill the first commandment. Because we, we have, like Calvin said, a, a, a factory of idols in our hearts. We have all kinds of things we worship and adore and prostrate and bow down to daily, minute after minute. Just an inspection of our thoughts will tell us what we worship, an inspection of our mouths and the abundance of what our mouths speak of tells us what is really in our hearts. And we know it is not only God all the time, all our heart, all our strength, all our might. We know it doesn't happen. That's why we need a Savior who kept the law in our place and then died to satisfy the life that we couldn't live and the penalty we deserve, and in him, we keep the law. That's the gospel. If you think there's another way to do it, there ain't. A person is defined by who or what they worship. What we worship molds us, conforms even our psychological conduct, perspective, behavior. Do you want a simple example? Israel at Sinai. Moses is receiving the tablets of the law. 
spends 40 days in the mountain. He's delaying. And the people are starting to get nervous. There's the Egyptians nearby. Where's this Moses that got us out of here and brought us to this place? And everybody's starting to get jittery. And Aaron buckles to their pressure. Says, get me all your gold. Get me all your signet rings. Get me all the jewelry you guys have. Puts it in a pot, melts it, and shapes a golden calf. And Aaron tells Israel, this golden calf, this is Yahweh. This is the God who got you out of Egypt. What happened right after? The people went into moral debauchery. Immediately, they went into fornication, dancing, all kinds of, of, of immorality, especially of a sexual nature. Why? Because God was no longer the majestic, awesome, invisible God. God could be reduced to this little golden calf that I can tug it away and just forget about him. What we worship, who we worship, defines us. And of course, a congregation, a church, is also defined by their vision of God. How we view God, how we understand God to be, how we think of God, speak of God, and teach about God, will also mold us. A worship service at the church is nothing else than a gathering in the presence of God. In New Testament language, this assembly at this moment that has been convocated in the name of Jesus with the purpose of worshiping becomes the dwelling of God, the temple of God in the Spirit, the household of God. Not the building, the gathering of the little living stones which are each one of you and me, that becomes the dwelling of God in the spirit. Maybe you remember the story of Hugh Latimer, the man who had to preach at the West, Westminster Abbey in the presence of King George. And I would imagine that poor Hugh Latimer should have been nervous. I mean, if you're told that you're going to be speaking in, in the presence of the President of the United States or in the presence of some great dignitary, if you're any human being, you're going to be nervous. And the story goes that Latimer, Latimer would say to himself, some say that he would say to himself, others say that he started his sermon with these words, I really do not know, but that he would say, Latimer, Latimer, be careful how you speak, the King of England is in this place. And immediately after, he started to say to himself, Latimer, Latimer, be careful how you speak, because the king of kings is in this place. When we gather to worship, we don't gather to put a performance or to entertain people and visitors to somehow put a spectacle for you guys. We gather in the presence of the living God. And that consciousness... Who is this God will mold and form and, and give characteristics to how we worship? When we gather as a congregation, this is the most crucial reality where the gospel impacts our lives. Now, let's see the dynamics of that in the passage we just read. Let us look at the Samaritan woman's question in verses 19 and 20 again. 
when Jesus confronts her with the reality that she's an immoral woman, and as we saw, nobody wanted to hang out with her. She was drawing water alone because the other women in town said, we don't want to hang out with that lady. I mean, and she would have to come on her own at a time nobody was there. Why? Because she had had five husbands. And the guy she was hooking up now was not her husband. Very immoral person to whom Jesus to whom Jesus brings the gospel, draws her to himself, and offers himself a savior. And eventually, yes, she was saved. And she brought all the Samaritans to consider who Jesus was. Now, when she is confronted with her immorality, she comes with this question, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. You bet you can see it. Her ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And I see humor there because some people take this as a cop-out. When you're pinned against the wall, you need to somehow detour the force of the argument. You need to somehow distract the attention of the person who's talking to you. It's like when you're it used to happen to me more before than now. But you're preaching to someone, they come under conviction, and immediately the next question is, okay, what happened to those aborigines before Christianity came to America? I have no idea what happened to them, but that's not the problem. I'm talking to you. So don't bring me to the aborigines before Columbus came. That's God's problem, not mine or yours for the matter. Let's talk about you and I. You are hearing the gospel now. Tell me about you. So the woman, perhaps, is throwing this cop out when she was discovered. Maybe. It's not in the text. It's an assumption. So I don't want to accuse her of doing that. Perhaps she really wanted to learn more about worship. Well, since this guy told me, who am I? He's the perfect person to ask him about true worship. Sir, tell me, where should we worship? Who is right about worship? You, the Jews, or we, the Samaritans? Her concern was the place of worship. Her preoccupation at this point stops being her own life, but who is right about worship? It's human nature. We want to know who is right. We, we want to make sure we are right. And if we're not sure, at least we want to impose our views as the right one. We want to feel we have this copyright of the truth. To be saved, you have to not just believe in Jesus and give your heart to him and repent of your sins and come to him in faith and repentance. No, no. To really be saved, you have to believe like I do. Because if you don't, then you're not too bona fide. Not true. But the woman was curious about where to worship. And Jesus didn't have a problem. And I love his answer. Telling her, you're wrong, we're right. Maybe some modern preachers would not like that approach. Maybe somebody who really wants to be popular and be favored with the opinion or the public opinion would have said, well, it depends how you view it because at the end of the day, all roads lead to God and it doesn't matter. Uh-uh. Jesus was straight in his answer. But... He didn't stop at telling him, telling her, you're wrong and I'm right. He brought the conversation to the next level. And that's what we see in Jesus' answer in verse 21, verses 21 and 22. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, 
A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, they were in Samaria, in the city of Sychar, or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Last week I mentioned to you what was the story with Samaritans, or of the Samaritans. When the Assyrians took the, the ten northern tribes, the kingdom split after Solomon. Judah and Benjamin remained at the south with Jerusalem as its capital. And the other ten tribes remained in the north with Samaria as its capital. Rehoboam didn't want to lose the ten tribes he had, so he built an, al an altar and a sanctuary mimicking the one in Jerusalem so that these ten tribes would remain worshiping in the northern area in Samaria. But after a couple of hundred years, the Assyrians came and took them away exiled. And they left the northern side of Israel desolate. But they had to repopulate because it was a problem. You cannot leave a vast land of, area of land or a plot of land completely unpopulated, without order, in chaos, without authority, without organization. So they bring back people from the north to repopulate the land. Not Israelites. People from other tribes or peoples they had conquered, and they repopulate Israel. But when they repopulate Israel, God starts to send judgments to them. Because they were not worshiping God according to what he ordered. And problems started to happen. So the king of Assyria said, we need to fix this. Send them someone to teach them how to worship the God of that land. He was not a God-fearing person. He had his own ideas about religion. But he said, let's fix this by teaching them how to worship properly the God of that area. And in 2 Kings 17, 29... We find an interesting statement about the Samaritans after the Assyrians sent them a Levite who taught them how to worship. Second Kings seventeen twenty nine says, Nevertheless, the people of each nation continued to make their own gods in the cities where they had settled. But they set them up in the shrines that the people of Samaria had made on the high places. So the new residents worshipped the Lord... But they also appointed for themselves priests of all sorts to serve in the shrines of the high places. They worshipped the Lord. But they also served their own gods according to their own customs or according to the customs of the nations which they had been carried away. This is why Jesus answered how he did. This is why he told, he told the lady, you Samaritans do not know what you're talking about. You do not know how to worship right. And he was dogmatic and emphatic. Because salvation comes from the Jews. What you guys have is a milieu. An eclectic worship. Some kind of syncretism there. Mixing worshiping Yahweh and also worshiping your own gods. And you have a mixture of cultures and traditions. True worship is the one that happens in Jerusalem right now. But Jesus takes her to a step further. Now, I like the fact that he straightened, he straightened the facts for her. He said, you're wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. Remember when Paul asked that rhetoric question or rhetorical question in Romans 9? What advantage is there for a Jew? A lot. From them came the covenant. 
From them are the patriarchs. From them came the prophets. And from them also came Jesus, who is God above all. So yes, there's an advantage of being a Jew. We're not dispensationalists. We don't believe that, oh, the Jews are going to be somehow restored in a way that is separate from the church because this mistake happened that is called the church and it's all about Israel. No. If there's any restoration for anyone, Jewish or not, it's going to happen in the context of the new covenant inaugurated by Christ after his resurrection. There is salvation in no one else and no other way that it is not by grace through faith in Christ. Get it clear. Now, salvation is from the Jews. <laughs> Jesus was a Jew. And his answer was dogmatic. Jesus said, we are right and you are wrong. I know that's a bad word in our days. Oh, don't be dogmatic. You have to say, in my humble opinion. Well, many times we have to say, in my humble opinion. But if the Bible says it's black, black it is. If we believe the Bible is the Word of God. If we don't, okay, then it's a philosophical opinion to you. But for those of us who believe in Scripture, it is what it is. So Jesus was very dogmatic. Samaritan worship was characterized. And remember, it's a mixture. It is the, the, what, the little they learned from these Levites and then their own traditions and customs. It was very euphoric and passionate. Any resemblance with today's events? Perhaps it is coincidence. Probably it is not. They were very passionate in their worship. But they were wrong. They were not worshiping God according to what he had prescribed for worship. My intentions can be the best. My intentions can be lofty. But the road to hell, the old saying says, is paved by good intentions. We don't approach God based on what our intentions are. When the police officer stops you on the road and says, you know why I stopped you? And you say no, and he says, you're doing 50 in a zone of 30. 30. Oh, I didn't know, sir. He says, oh, okay, if you didn't know, keep going. No, you get your ticket. Because ignorance is not an excuse to violate the law. You're a lawyer, you know that. The law is the law, period. It's your job to find out. Right? So Jesus says, it is what it is. You guys are wrong. And he was emphatic and dogmatic. And the Samaritans were, in their error, very passionate, very sincere, very euphoric. By the way, that's the way pagan worship was. What Paul corrects in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is the worship to Bacchus, to Cybelis, and to other pagan gods and goddesses, which main characteristic was the euphoria, the losing of control, the passion. And when he says in Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he's not regulating the drinking of wine or not. He's addressing the issue of worship. Because some people got high to worship even better. Paul says, no. The worship of God is directed and controlled by the Spirit of God. 
Now, Jewish worship, in contrast, was very tamed, prim and proper, and orthodox. Oh, that's my kind. They were Reformed Baptists. That's what I like. You know what Jesus said of them? You hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You just do things by toad. You repeat things one after the other, but you don't have your heart in what you're doing. It's like when we sing and mouth the songs that are in the screen, but, but our minds are elsewhere. When we read the Bible and our minds are elsewhere, even when we're praying, but we are distracted thinking in something else. Their worship was right, but it was not sincere. So in the third place, Jesus explained to the woman the nature of true worship. Verse 23 and 24. Yet the hour has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth, translates the NIV. And Jesus gives the characteristic of what true worship ought to have. It ought to have spirit, and now commentators are divided there. Does spirit mean mean my spirit engaged? I would say yes. Does spirit mean the Holy Spirit moving through worship? And I would say yes also. New covenant worship is beyond forms. That's the point Jesus is making. The hour is coming, and I believe Jesus is making a point about his death and resurrection and Pentecost, and the inauguration of the new covenant. There's an hour coming that worship to the true and living God will have nothing to do with forms and liturgies or places. It will have everything to do with spirit and truth. Jesus' statement also implies that worship can be true and also can be false. We can worship the wrong gods with little g. That's false worship. But we can worship the true God with a large g incorrectly, and that's also false worship. Make no mistakes. God didn't say, well, worship me. How? Take a shot. You don't find that in Scripture. God is very meticulous how he prescribes worship. I know it's boring to read the second part of Exodus. I know. Maybe it's not for you. Awesome. Congratulations. It is for me. I'm sorry for sinning or for not setting a good example. And it's boring to read Leviticus. Maybe it's not for you. It is for me. But we read it. Why? Why do we read it? Because it reminds you how meticulous, how careful... God is about his worship. It reminds you how holy he is. That he had to have all these regulations and all these steps put in between people and him so he would not consume them. 
And then you'd say, oh, wow, I'm so glad I have Christ as my mediator now. I'm so glad I have a new and living way to the throne of grace, which was inaugurated by the blood of the Lamb. That's what we gather from those things. But it is not that God is haphazard about worship. In fact, when Aaron's first two children decided that, that dude, I mean, that's, that's a complicated formula. Like, what do we men do when we have to assemble something? There's a manual. Oh, what manual? We do it ourselves, and then we have three knots, four bolts, and a whole bunch of things out that we don't know where they fit. Of course, the thing doesn't turn on. Well, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu were exactly the same. Why follow this complicated formula to build the perfume of the altar? Mix it. What happened? Fire came and consumed them. And when Aaron came to retrieve their children, God says, don't cry. Don't cry. They were messing with me. That's what I told you. That I will be sanctified by those who approach the altar. God means business when it comes to worship. So yes, you can try to worship the true God falsely. True worship is addressed to God. And God is a person. God is not an object. You, something that really ticks me. And I have bitten my tongue, the tongues of my fingers on Facebook, so many times when I hear people talking about the universe. Oh, I'm thankful to the universe this morning. The universe. And I'm asking the universe to bless me. What are you talking about? So you don't want to admit there is a God? And you're replacing God for the universe? Do you believe in string theory? Or do you believe in quantum physics? Or is it multiverse? Or just one verse? What are we talking about? We worship a God who is a person. Single entity called God. With emotions. With intellect, with knowledge, with self-awareness. No one, nothing is like him, completely separate from his creation. But he is a person. And that is who we worship when we worship. Reason why we do it in spirit. And that's why worship must be spiritual. Because God doesn't have a body like we have. You cannot contain him to a little box or to a form or to anything. But it also has to be according to the truth. According to what he has said, he accepts in worship. And in this last portion, and I'm almost done, I just want to quote Sam Gordon. Because I believe he'll, he'll say it better than me. And I put the quote on the screen so it's easier to follow. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? Yeah, there's the quote. He says, to say that we must worship God in spirit means, among other things, that it must originate from within, from the heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love to God and gratitude for all he has done. He adds, but the word spirit here also may be a reference to the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul said that Christians worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So yes, it's both. It is worship that is sincere, coming from within, 
but it is worship that has to be moved and infused and led by the Holy Spirit of God who comes to a person when they believe and are regenerated and come to be also temple of God. Truth-based worship, says Sam Gordon, worship, however, must also be in truth. Our worship must conform to the revelation of Scripture. It must be informed by who God is and what he is like. Our worship must be rooted and tethered to the realities of biblical revelation. God forbid that we should ever sing heresy. Worship is not meant to be formed by what feels good or by the light of what is, tr- or of what is true. Genuine, Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. It must be doctrinally grounded and focused on the truth of all we know of our great triune God. To worship inconsistently with what is revealed to us in Scripture ultimately degenerates into idolatry. Let me stop a sec. With due respect, with due respect, because they are doing their job. But worship, music, is not to be encouraging, whatever the station, encouraging, uplifting. I didn't want to use the name. Worship is not, oh, let me see how I get you guys high and everything. We get happy when we come to worship. No. We're worshiping God. Yes, we sing to one another, but we sing psalms, spiritual songs, scripture. We exhort, we instruct, we teach, we admonish one another with our singing. And we have to be careful in what we choose to sing. Because inadvertently, it may be a cool song, but it may be a heresy. Somebody has said that theologians back in the day used to write music. Now musicians write theology. And in some churches, that's the theology of the church. Because when you come to the sermon, it's a nice pep talk. And I wish I could speak like them and be as handsome as they are and as winsome as they are. But I really don't wish it if I'm going to not tell you what Scripture teaches. And that's the point. We have to be careful what we sing, what we proclaim, what we preach, what we teach. Are we teaching based on Scripture? Oh, but you don't know Scripture perfectly. No, I don't. But are we taking our best shot with the best we've got, with a book that is understandable and readable and given to be understood, not cryptic? Let me say something about the author that I disagree with But I have to be honest and complete the quote. Because Sam Gordon also says, None of this means that you have to worship the way other people at your church do. Don't we know some of that here, even in our small church? If the truth of God's word moves you to lift your hands, dance, shout out loud, or wave a banner, God bless you. If the truth of God's word leads you into solemn reverence, as you remain seated and immovable, God bless you. But let's make certain that in either case, we worship both in spirit and truth. 
for it is just such people that the Father is seeking. I don't agree with the dancing and the shouting out loud and none of that stuff, but whatever you do, the Bible says that it be done decently and in order. Anybody walks into the church and says, yes, these people are worshiping God. I want to know about that God. Who is he? And that person will prostrate on their own faces and seek God. Or they'll come in and say, these guys are crazy. The embarrassment I have to go through almost weekly with my unbelieving friends sending me videos of the craziness that goes in evangelical churches in the name of spiritual worship. It's unbearable. But that's what is popular. Conclusion, worship is not just a Sunday activity. Remember that. Worship is a daily activity. Minute after minute. In fact, what we do here ought to be a reflection of how we live. If all our Christian life is gathering an hour on Sundays and an extra hour for Sunday school, if that's all our Christian life is, <laughs> we, we don't have it. We don't, we don't understand the deal. This is just a reflection of gathering together to express what our lives are, how we live. So we worship praying and we ought to pray always without ceasing. We worship reading scripture. It's not just marking my calendar or following my daily calendar here. No, I'm reading to learn and to see God and to find Jesus in my reading. We worship discharging the duties of our calling. You ladies worship in front of a pile of laundry or having to prepare the meals for your family, or going to work and helping your husbands with the sustenance of the family, whatever it is you do. And we men the same. We worship in our day-to-day -day calling, whether as a student or whether as a worker, as a child, as a father, as whatever we are. We worship day-to-day. -day. And we worship especially, especially, Remembering the gospel to our souls constantly. When you open the shower and the water starts to run, and those thoughts come, sometimes they are bad thoughts. When you turn 60, you have a lot of regrets in life. A lot of poor decisions, a lot of things you did that you shouldn't have done. A lot of things that come to life. And you can have two ways about it. You can boast about them, or you can cry about them. Either way, that's a good time to worship and say, thank you, Lord. This is not about me. I blew it. I flunked. I did it wrong so many times. But I'm not standing here on the wisdom of my decisions. I'm not standing here on the greatness of who I am. I'm standing here because you made a promise that any sinner who hopes in you will not perish but have eternal life. And that's also a time to worship. Father, bless your word. Use it to our circumstances and according to our needs. Help us, Father, to be worshipers in spirit and truth. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. May our vision of you grow by the day so that we may be passionate worshipers in the spirit and according to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.